Hello, Ops listeners. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 1 of Operating, the podcast about all things operations, from great operating companies, the operators behind them, or the Ops best practices that drive operational excellence. I'm Jason Leo Carvello, and I am your host. Today we are talking to Nate Bennett, the author of Riding Shotgun, The Role of the COO. Nate Bennett is a professor with the Robinson College of Business at Georgia State University. For the past 30 years, he has worked closely with business to develop and deliver high-impact leadership development programs. These opportunities have resulted in a number of articles written for managers, as well as two books, Riding Shotgun, The Role of the COO, and Your Career Game, How Game Theory Can Help You Achieve Your Professional Goals. Both are books published by Stanford University Press. Nate continues to conduct research and consult with executives on addressing the challenges associated with change management, top management team effectiveness, and leader development. Nate joins us from his home in the United States. You recently had an article that came out talking about operating, and I think it was applying to universities. Yeah, I wrote a, uh, I wrote a piece really about how well does the provost role prepare you to be uh, a president. Provost is essentially the, the COO in that, well, using the, the uh, traditional American titles for university offices, the provost is essentially a COO. One of the things with this podcast is we're not just simply trying to focus in on listeners that are from the business world, definitely from the not-for-profit, social entrepreneurial world, to talk about operating. Um, what was the feedback from the article? Well, it's, it's a, I appreciate the question. It's, it's been interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> I think the, 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 the feedback, honestly, the, the, the most common feedback is, um, you know, we're talking about really smart people with PhDs. What, what preparation could they possibly need? You know, there's just sort of a, a sense sometimes that if you've basically been in universities your whole life, uh, you know, beginning as a, an undergraduate and then a doctoral student and then up through the professorial ranks and, and then becoming interested in university administration, that you have sort of somehow incorporated the skills that you would need to be successful in whatever job you, you could possibly be offered. So there's just a, a sort of a, a general overconfidence, I think, in preparation. People who have uh, people who have spoken with me about the article who are uh, you know, who work at search firms that do academic search, you know, I think found it <clears throat> really quite reasonable um, that that <clears throat> they've had the experience of looking at at dozens, if not hundreds, of candidates for these jobs and and have a pretty good sense of how to sort who's prepared and who's not. Here, here's what I think people sometimes miss: it isn't just about time in the role to understand the breadth or the complexity of an organization's operations. It's time to build good, trusting relationships with all the people you need to have on board in order for you to be successful, right? So even if I'm prepared um, academically for a role, if I don't have those relationships, it's going to be very difficult for me to be effective, uh, right? Yeah, 100%. And um, what was the catalyst for, for that article? There's been um, a lot written in the last probably year, year and a half in the Chronicle of Higher Education uh, about university leadership. The, the last um, 
half a dozen years anyway, have been a very mm-hmm. difficult time for the industry. Uh, the demographics are against us. The state funding here in the U.S., uh, public support for universities is trending against us. Mm-hmm. Technology is um, making potentially pretty drastic changes in the way we deliver an education. It's certainly changing the student expectations around how we deliver education. And so a lot's been written about how this is really a difficult time for leaders in higher ed. And so to me, that sort of begs the question, uh, how do we ensure that we have good leadership? And, you know, I've written previously in in the Chronicle about this um, and about the fact that I think as an industry, we do a pretty poor job um, preparing people for leadership positions. Uh, And that's an unfortunate coincidence, right? To have a, a daunting external environment combined with inattention to leadership development, that doesn't bode well for an organization's future. I know a few years ago, I, I had the, the good fortune of sitting on a college board. For me, as, as, a, as a young entrepreneur coming out of you know entrepreneurship and, and sitting on these boards, it was rather fascinating because you had a lot of um, professional figures, uh, you know, former VPs of banks and Fortune X companies and whatnot sitting on these boards. At this specific uh, organization, the major role of that board was to hire and fire the the CEO. Yeah. Obviously, we were we were just going through a strategic planning session, just come out of five year one. We're going to a five year one. Uh, we in fact actually had to go through a CEO search at the same period of time. And one thing that I found was not being yet prepared for the reality of this new economy. You know, the mm-hmm. institution the institution was looking at new ways to create courses, but had to compete with other institutions. The governments were involved, but wouldn't allow for specific accreditations to take place. Because we were going through a president's search, we were concerned not only about the brand and risk to the brand, but we were also concerned then about, you know, us meeting our fiduciary responsibilities on an annual basis. As it relates to the topic of the COO, you know, where where could a potential COO or that type of role play in the future of you know, education right now. Are you thinking specifically about somebody whose background and preparation is non-academic, but more, uh, you know, the business leader sort of sensibility or? So, you know, when we were doing the search for the for the CEO, we had hired Hayes uh, to come in and, and do the search. Um, and we ultimately ended up hiring from within. Uh, and I thought that was, that was great that we were able to hire from within in terms of the president um, and CEO role. But then when we started looking at the organization, um, you know, on the finance committee and sitting on the technology committee, uh, you know, we would have the CFO come in, but we wouldn't have um, anybody that came in that had an understanding of the, the operations of the organization as it relates to, say, technology and infrastructure. And um, I don't think anybody ever thought at the board level to go outside the scope of education to bring in an operator that can help prepare the institution um, for the you know the future of tomorrow in terms of uh, of of the delivery of not only education but also uh, the setup of the institution uh, from a university perspective. So I you know I, I just happen to wonder if more institutions should be looking at hiring outside for for a COO uh, with maybe more of a corporate background to come in and help them help guide their their strategic plans. All right. So, no, I appreciate the the additional explanation. Um, 
so so higher higher ed is a, is an interesting um, industry I think in this regard so the the provost who I've suggested can be thought about really as the COO mm-hmm. is if, if you were going to use C language you would probably call them <clears throat> the chief academic officer mm-hmm. so their responsibility is for um, making sure that together the faculty deliver <clears throat> the sort of education that is being promised to students. And to be in that role and not have a terminal degree, uh, I think would be a very difficult, that would be a very difficult position to put somebody in. So if you hired in a, an amazing COO from some other industry to come and you know, really help the university understand how to operate in today's times. Uh, I don't know that the faculty would follow that person. It's pretty easy to be, I, I think, to be dismissive of somebody who who that obviously doesn't have in inside experience in the industry. And I, and I don't, I don't think that's unusual necessarily about higher ed. I think generally a CLO from another industry is really disadvantaged. I think in higher ed it's even worse. Um, so I think what, what universities are doing is they're, they're clearly understanding that, uh, particularly with technology, the potential disruption is enormous. And so I think that you're seeing more, more commonly in universities, uh, chief technology officer who's at a, operating at an elevated level, you know, perhaps they're now a direct report to the president, whereas before they would have reported up through some structure or a chief innovation officer, similarly, who's reporting directly to the president as opposed to being buried deeper in the org chart. And so I think those positions, I know, for example, <clears throat> at my university, uh, Georgia State, the individual who's in that job came to us from NCR. So mm. this is you know, very clearly an industry person, not just an industry person, but someone who came from a technology company. Um, but they would not be they would not be, I think, um, easily suited for the chief academic officer job, which is where the provost is. Does that does that flow? Does that make sense? Yeah, I know, hundred percent. And it's fascinating because you know one of the one of the topics that's been brought up many times in, in your book, writing shotgun, the role of the COO, and other articles is number one the search for the COO, and then the creation for that job description. So if we just keep with this example, every institution, educational or social enterprise or startup has to go about creating a job description suits their needs and wants. And then obviously go out and be able to find that individual. If we stick with just say the educational piece and maybe then flow into the the startup and business world, are you seeing search companies, uh, companies that HR companies that are finding talent, understand that CEO role more now and and be able to actually prepare to find the talent for say the educational industry or let's say the the business world i do think that what's happened over you know the last 15 years or so that i've been paying careful attention to the coo role is that there is um it's really a clearer understanding of how uh, unclear what you need in the coo can be right Mm -hmm. it's you know our our um, view from very early on in this research has been that what makes the role so interesting is that it is so situational. And so 
that means the the first step for a for a CEO, for a board, for a search firm, is to really try to get <clears throat> a, a, a nuanced understanding of how how do we need the role to look so that it works here and now, and then given how the role needs to look here and now, what does that tell us about the sort of person we need to be searching for? So I, I think there's a, a better appreciation of the, um, the complexity and the nuance of the role. And I think that is driving the way searches unfold. Mm. And some of the prep, I sent you over some some interview questions. And in one of those questions, I had made a note that uh, we've seen a lot of the new economy brands, such as Etsy and Airbnb and Instagram, um, like adopt the CEO role. Yeah. From your perspective, just seeing the landscape for, for a decade plus, is that exciting to you? Um, are you seeing a significant change? in understanding the CEO role because of that? Uh, will you know future research be that much more exciting because of what we're seeing in, in the adoption of the CEO role by these new brands? What's encouraging, I guess, about what you're describing is that because these are, are hot brands and because there's so much more uh, attention paid to, to the sort of soap opera that leadership of a fast-growing startup uh, can be, uh, you know, that means that people are just paying attention to the COO role and what it could bring to a company. So I think it's I think it's attention that's helpful. Um, it isn't always clear that these fast growing companies are doing it very well. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the clearest example of that recently has been, you know, what took place last summer uh, at both Uber and Lyft, um, where I think you can make an argument that the wrong COO was hired, or at least the wrong COO for the time, uh, and they pretty quickly, you know, each exited their organization. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure that 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 uh, simply because you're seeing it more in these companies that it, you can say anything about whether or not we're doing it better. That sharing of of power in any relationship is extremely difficult. And this obviously can be complicated by a lack of specificity in the role. What can we share with listeners that are in that operations or CO role that are dealing with a lack of clarity maybe on their role or are dealing potentially with that quote-unquote power issue that may be a catalyst to an exit? Um, what kind of strategic right. advice can you provide to, to, to listeners on that? Well, because they're the, the number two in the relationship, uh, there's only so much they can do to try to influence how it evolves. But if you're in that number two role and you sense that there are some boundary issues taking place, or if you sense that there's some confusion among the rest of the organization about which of you is responsible for what, um, you need to quickly have conversation with the number one to sort through that. And I think you need to be able to to come to that conversation armed with specifics that show how uh, the lack of alignment is creating confusion for other people in the organization or for stakeholders uh, outside the organization uh, to, to try to help the number one really understand that it's worth the investment of time and energy to make sure that you, the two of you are staying in alignment. If the CEO is not receptive to a, you know, a data-based argument that there's work to be done to make sure the two of you stay aligned, 
I wouldn't be particularly hopeful about the the long term uh, prognosis for that for that leadership pair. I, you know, I think that that's likely to to continue to be a problem and likely to continue to cause frustration for others in the organization and ultimately to fail. Mm -hmm. And and for um, those that are potentially taking on roles as COOs or or uh, in in the ops um, world, what and how can they prepare for an interview? Um, what would be potentially three things that they could look for going into an interview uh, with with the CEO um, and the rest of the organization? You're speaking about at the at the stage where uh, they're a candidate for the position. Correct. Yeah. I mean, as a as a former CEO myself. Um, I think that one of the biggest and hardest questions uh, to myself is, you know, will will I fit in? Will I work well with the CEO? And um, as, yeah. as I mentioned to you, your, your book over the years was um, really instrumental in, in providing some level of guidance because as an individual who's going to take on this position, um, as mentioned in your book and your research, you have to be egoless going into this. And that's extremely difficult as like an A type of personality. Uh, and then at the same time, as you're, you know, trying to figure out the organization, you're trying to figure out, is the CEO and I go, you know, are we going to mesh well? Um, and I, and I right. feel that there's a lot of people out there trying to uh, love operations. They love logistics. They, they love the details. Uh, they don't want to do, they don't want to be the front facing a person of the organization, um, but they don't really know the CEO role, right? They don't really know what that dynamic between uh, the CEO and COO is. So what perhaps could we share with listeners who are about to go into maybe an interview? Um, how can they prepare themselves to, to ask questions that are going to lead to really meaningful answers from, from say the CEO? Thanks for the additional, uh, the additional explanation. I think the you know, the, the number one thing that, that a candidate wants to get out of the interview uh, process is a sense that they can develop a trusting relationship with the CEO. So there has to be there has to be confidence that that can happen. Um, that can be a difficult thing to uh, ascertain, you know, in, in just one meeting. And, and you know, from from looking at the book, there are a number of stories in there of successful CEO and COO pairs where there was essentially a courtship process that took place. I mean, it was, it was many meetings over several months um, that took place uh, before the, the job was, uh, was offered to the CLO candidate. So it may not take you that, you, you know, if you're from inside the company, you may already have a strong relationship with the CEO and be able to conclude pretty quickly that you can have a trusting relationship. But, but that's the, that's the first thing that needs to, that needs to take place uh, that needs to be assessed. I think the, the second thing that as a candidate you want to get clear on is once the boundaries are established about what it is that you're going to be responsible for, I think you have to really be able to honestly self-assess whether or not you'd be satisfied with doing that work. You know, is that, is that what's going to work for you? And so, you know, you gave a, you gave an example in, in explaining the question to me, um, you know, about, uh, you know, sort of, sort of what falls into the COO's bucket, and you know, we had uh, one great conversation with a uh, with an executive who said that uh, 
the way his job was structured relative to the CEO was that whenever they opened the plant, the CEO was there. And whenever they closed the plant, the COO was there. Um, if you're not going to be okay with being the plant closing guy, then you probably don't need to continue to pursue that position. Um, similarly, I think that there are, there are instances where someone seeks a COO job because they really are hopeful that it's going to be the platform that allows them to ultimately become CEO. Um, you have to be able to accurately assess whether or not you think that's a possibility. Right. So Sheryl Sandberg at Facebook, I'm sure, has no illusion that she will ever be the CEO at Facebook. Right. That's not going to happen. If one of her if one of her aspirations at the time she took that job was to one day be CEO, that would have been a bad job to take. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's a that's a second thing the CEO needs to needs to think about. Um, and then I think they also you know, want to spend some time trying to um, ascertain how much support there is um, for the CEO among board members and other stakeholders. Uh, because to the extent that the CEO doesn't have support, uh, I think the role will be a rockier ride. But those are the first three things I think that come to mind that, that as a COO candidate, I'd want to try to tease out as I was learning more about the opportunity. That leads us into a, a, a great um, point about boards and the role that they play in that CEO, CEO relationship. Could you expand a bit on that? Um, for those that are board members that are VCs listening, um, how can they prepare themselves for the onboarding of a CEO or uh, just if they are working with a CEO right now, well, let's just say that, that VC has just closed, you know, 20 million series A round of financing. They realize they've got to bring on a COO because the CEO has got to go now really focus in on maybe business development and, uh, and, and do what he, he or she needs to do. Uh, how can a board of director uh, play a, a vital role in ensuring that relationship is, is maintained between the CEO and COO? That's a great question. The, um, you know the circumstance you describe, where where a COO is is sort of required or or brought to the brought to the mix by the board or pressure from the board, um, is a is a regular one. That's a frequent occurrence, just as you've described, um, and it's also a difficult way for a COO to begin uh, a job. Right, when whenever the creation of a COO is not the CEO's idea. Um, it starts the relationship off in a difficult way. It's, you know, essentially a, an arranged marriage versus a, a, you know, a voluntary marriage. So the first thing I would say is if I was on the board, I would have wanted to have started a long time prior to the, the search for a COO to get the CEO ready for this, right? So there should have been, uh, you know, many, many, many conversations about the milestones that would trigger the decision to look for a COO there should have been many conversations about what the COO role was going to have responsibility for, you know, one that when they were brought on board, uh, you know, there should have been conversations about how that would be a benefit to the CEO in terms of making time on their calendar for activities that they agree they need to be focused on. So I think that's the first, the first point, the conversations around uh, the COO need to begin a lot uh, earlier than than the search for the the COO, 
that's the first thing. Then the, the second thing is, you know, the, there really are two relationships for the board members to manage. One is with the CEO and the other with the COO. Um, and, you know, those will be done well when the boundaries between the two roles are and remain clear. You know, the CEO is going to be the authority in these areas. The COO is going to be the authority in these areas. Um, and it's important that board members not board members have to respect the boundaries, I guess, to the same degree that employees have to respect the boundary. Does that make sense? Yeah, hundred percent. Right. Because if they, if they don't, then it starts to look like, you know, somebody's trying to go around someone else. Uh, someone has an agenda that isn't necessarily a healthy one. Um, and, and from that, you know, you, you quickly have rumors and speculation and anxiety and paranoia and a whole bunch of other things that are not positive attributes in a fast growing company. And that emotional piece, um, I think it, it's been quoted um, many times in, in Riding Shotgun, the role of the COO, and uh, again, other other articles, uh, such as the HBR classic second command, the misunderstood role of the chief operating officer. Um, the, the COO role is a very, very complicated one, and probably, again, one of the hardest roles within the company. Um, the the focus on mental health has been a, a big topic over the last five years for startups and, and the business world. Um, and obviously with large cases like uh, that we've seen with WeWork and Uber come out over the last uh, five years. Um, how can board members help with that uh, topic of mental health? How can CEOs um, include mental health and wellness as, as part of the discussion? Um, what tactics or implementations can take place uh, to ensure that say the COO is in fact um, not alone because it is a very lonely road being the COO. You know, you're not the face of the company. You're not making the decisions in some cases you're operating and you're reporting uh, and you're dealing with a myriad of, of issues, whether it be the board or, or customers or internal issues. Um, and again, you, as a CEO, you can get siloed sometimes and, and potentially burn out sooner than, than most people would think. Um, but again, going back to your earlier point about uh, board members and, and that relationship with the, the COO, um, how can we maybe get into maybe three ways that uh, a CEO or a board of director could help uh, ensure that the mental uh, wellness of the CEO is, is A+. Plus? So I'd want to preface my answer by acknowledging that you're you're starting to push up against the edge if not on the edge of my uh my area of expertise <laughs> um but but i you know a couple things do a couple things do come to mind you know i think that the you know there there are um first of all i think that that to some degree this is a selection challenge um you have to you have to understand what you're hiring somebody to do, and you have to try to figure out a way to be smart about assessing them and their ability to be successful in that role. And uh, you know whether you want to call it mental toughness or uh, battle testedness or whatever expression you want to use. Uh, you know I think you want to you don't want to hire somebody into something where you're requiring them to be in over their head. 
you know, that's asking for, uh, you know, asking something unfair of them. So I think that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is, I, you know, I think that what you're, what you're really describing is, um, uh, you know, a company culture that is in some manner sick. Um, you know, in a startup environment, everybody understands that you're going to be pedaling as fast as you can pedal, that there's going to be a great deal of, of uncertainty, that you're going to be required to, to make pivots, you know, constantly, um, you know, that, that in effect, you're going to be working at a different company every day. Um, so in, in order to, to create a situation where people can be successful in that environment, I think you have to build a culture that's, that's positive and supportive and, and team-oriented and uh, uh, allows for open communication and expression of concern and chances to vent. And, you know, I think that those are all things that, that you do through creating the right sort of culture that make it uh, easier for people to, to uh, release some pressure and don't stigmatize people, uh, doesn't stigmatize people when, you know, they need to do something like that. So I think that's the, you know, the second piece of it. Um, and I'm not sure I can, I'm not sure I can get you your third. I think those are the two things that I'd want to, <laughs> I'd want to suggest people invest in. Fair enough. No, fair enough. Um, the, the tools, uh, for the COO, is there any new research on, on tools for the CEO to kind of do their job? Um, is there any new case studies that have been examined uh, about how a CEO can continue to evolve within an organization um, and, and create, again, some tool sets that allow them to be elastic and, and deal with that pressure um, that is, is consistent uh, within in, in a high, high growth organization? So I'm not sure I can drill down to the level of specific specific tools, but I think that link might become apparent. If you, if you think about the things that have really impacted the way uh, a COO role uh, is shaped over the last 10, 12 years, um, there are probably a half a dozen or so things that that come to mind that that um, that are that are changing the way the role operates, and that could then be perhaps translated into specific skills or or techniques that it would make sense for a COO to invest in. I, I you know I think the um, the first thing that comes to mind is um, the emergence of uh, mobile computing and how drastically mobile computing has changed the way business gets done, but also the way uh, customers interact with businesses. Um, you, you think about the amount of power that, that a customer has in their hand to attack your brand or to promote your brand uh, relative to, you know, years ago. I mean, it's just a remarkable increase, right? If I used to be unhappy with the service I provided, um, the degree to which I could sort of slander that business was limited by the size of my neighborhood. Um, that's not the case. That's not the case anymore. Um, so I think really being able to wrap your hands around what that means for the way a company operates and the way, the way a company relates to customers is really important. In the book, 
Um, we had a great conversation with Gil West, who's the COO at Delta Airlines. And if your listeners have flown Delta, I'm here in Atlanta, so that's essentially who, who we fly. Um, they've done a remarkable job of leveraging uh, mobile computing to take costs out of their operation, to improve customer service. Um, it's really something else. And, and that's only possible when you have somebody in the COO role who can kind of see the vision of what could be. Um, so I think that's one that's really, uh, that's really important. Uh, related to that, you know, we live now in the era of big data and the Internet of Things. Um, most, most longstanding COOs have come up in a world where their IT unit um, was there to support operations. Um, now, it's an absolutely critical part of operations. And in many organizations, it's a source of competitive advantage. Um, that's, a, that's a very different a way of thinking about um, of thinking about technology, and so COOs have to be much more conversant in technology. Um, relatedly, the COO work nowadays is much more closely coupled with the work of the CFO. Uh, so COOs need to have much uh, more capable financial chops than they've had to have in the past. So I think that's another area where COOs can raise their game. Uh, We've had, we, we've seen in the last few years, uh, increasing uh, threats to operations. <clears throat> we have uh, examples of natural disasters like volcanoes and tsunamis that have uh, uh, made supply chains a, a nightmare. Uh, we have examples of data breaches at, at places like Target and most recently at TravelX, the currency exchange service, uh, just over New Year's. Um, we have physical acts of terror that companies have had to deal with. Um, so COOs have to be much better prepared as sort of global experts than they had to be previously. Uh, that's been that's been a change. Um, and then I think finally, uh, you know, we have an interesting <clears throat> situation in terms of the talent pool at work because you know, thanks to the the recession, uh, we have baby boomers staying in the workplace longer than maybe they would have otherwise. Uh, we've created a situation where there are really four generations at work, and those four generations uh, value different things. They want to be managed in different ways. Um, they have different expectations about what they'd like to, to get from the employer, uh, and a COO has to be able to tune in to that as well. So, you know, that's that's a, an example, I think, of the, the kinds of macro trends that have been pressing on organizations over the last 10 or so years. And then I think from that, you know, COOs can think about, you know, what particular investments do they need to make in themselves to be able to cope uh, and, and not just for them to be able to cope, but for them to be able to try to leverage these macro trends to help the organization. Amazing. That uh, history of the COO have, over the last decade, um, what is your um, story on how COOs have, have started? I, I know the COO was a military term, um, but did you have like your own version of how the, the CEO title has been created over time? Uh, that's that's an interesting, um, that's a really interesting question. I have not really thought about trying to um, pursue sort of a history. 
of the role or the emergence of the role. I mean, I, you know, I think you can, you can go back to, you know, as long as there have been hierarchies, there's been by definition a number two, right? Um, you know, so, so the, the role, <clears throat> who knows what it might've been called, uh, at any particular point in time, but the role has been around, uh, forever. Um, but that, that would, that's an interesting question. It would be, it would be, it would be a curiosity to me to see how the role has really involved and how the meaning of the role has involved, but we need to, we need to find a historian to help us with that. <laughs> well, I, I find it fascinating. Um, I mentioned in my questions that the transition, you know, into from the industrial revolution into you now this new economy. And now we're seeing more companies going uh, remote, you know, great companies like WordPress and others, uh, you know, WordPress is venture capital backed. Uh, they had, you know, hundreds of employees globally, uh, developers are working in multiple countries and um, you're seeing CEOs being hired for these remote uh, companies now. And I happen to wonder, um, you know, are, are the listeners uh, today, are, are some of these folks working at remote companies uh, looking at potentially uh, CEO positions or CEOs at these remote companies? And um, does the position change because of the, the lack of physicality? Right in your book, you mentioned about how some CEOs and COOs, um, in fact, weren't able to work well together because they they actually weren't even in the same building. Um, now we have CEOs and COOs and CTOs and CFOs that are are working completely remote uh, via Slack and via Zoom. Um, so, is there any feedback on on the correlation between a CEO and CEO working in the same environment? Uh, and the outcomes from that versus, say, uh, CEO and CEO that might be working in the distributed model. That's an interesting question too. I, you know, my my thought about that is uh, is as follows. First, <clears throat> we're going to get better at um, at remote work, or we're going to get better at using the technologies um, that allow us to work remotely. Um, you know, like WebEx and Zoom and all that, um, you know, uh, document sharing programs and so forth. So, you know, in 10 years, it'll be a whole lot easier than it is now, right? So, so we'll get better. Um, for me, I think the, the challenge is that, and this shouldn't come as any surprise to you, I, I obviously put a, a tremendous amount of value on trusting relationships. Um, mm. I don't know that we're great at developing deep trust um, when all of our communication is technology mediated. Now we may get there, but I don't know that we're there yet. Um, you know, I think that 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 if trust is not high and there is distance, there are too many opportunities for uh, suspicion to creep in about who this other person is and how hard this other person is working and what do they really value. Um, and, and again, you know, I think that, that when the, when a generation that has grown up with technology mediated communication gets to the C-suite, you know, in another 30 years, this will be a non-issue. But I think in the short run, um, how you demonstrate that you really are someone's trusted partner when all of your communication is via texts or 
video chats? Um, yeah, I think that's an open question. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge, huge um, question. Um, given the complexity of of you know how are you reading those texts? What time of day are you reading those texts with Slack? You know, people are online twenty four seven. Um, that ping never stops. Uh, sometimes right. you're in the shower and you hear that pinging uh, still. Um, so, so to your point about the, the relationship within the CEO and the COO, clearly those two individuals need to, to find and develop uh, behaviors uh, where they're, they're maybe outside of the system and spending quality time together on a regular basis. Um, in terms of the research and, and what you've seen over the last, just say, even five years, uh, what are great examples of, of great CEO and CEO relationships uh, from those brands out of the new economy? Well, that's it, I'm, I I love the question, and I'm thinking about how hard I, how hard I find it to answer because um, my attention immediately is drawn to the places where it hasn't uh, where it hasn't worked. You know, those are the those are the stories that uh, those are the stories that get attention um, because where it works, you don't hear about it. Right. Um, Good point. So if you're if you're an academic sitting in an office someplace and and a company down the road is is doing a great job, you don't really hear about. You know, that's not newsworthy that it's <laughs> that, that the CEO and CEO are getting along that there are no headlines like that. <laughs> um, so that's very that's a very difficult question for me to answer. What what can uh, let's say there's a CEO or CEO listening to this podcast right now? What I mean, what can they do to continue to educate others on on what's happening? Should should there be a call to arms to get out and get on Medium and get more on podcasts to be able to share these stories? Because to your point, you know there just seems to be a lot of negative news about failure rates of startups. Um, governance issue of startups, um, CEOs going off the rail. Um, what can those that are in operations do to uh, educate the rest of the world about those best practices? I think uh, that's an important question. You know, to me, it's about uh, it's about making sure that the COO has a voice, right? A voice that's independent of the CEO, and that's something that the board and CEO can both uh, can both do. Um, I mentioned Sheryl Sandberg earlier, uh, not that you would call Facebook a startup anymore, but she clearly has her own voice at Facebook, right? So, so in that regard, it provides a great example. Um, I think that, that board members and CEOs and COOs themselves should continue to try to find ways for that COO to have voice. And that's the best way to draw attention to, uh, you know, where it's working and then, when people start to understand where it's working, they'll begin to ask the question, why is it working? And then it's from the answer to that question, I think that we help prepare next generations. Do you think the the role of the CEO um, and the topic of operations are becoming more, more relevant for say government and, and not-for-profits? Um, are you hearing this, this topic of operations being discussed more? I don't know that I can that I can say that I've heard it more now. You know, after the first edition of Riding Shotgun came out, I had the opportunity to work uh, with Accenture on a uh, affinity group for COOs that they created and supported for a number of years, and we uh, we actively sought out both government and uh, nonprofit 
members for that organization and it, it wasn't hard to find them. So I, you know, I think that the, there is a history of, uh, of having, you know, that COO role uh, formally designated in, in not-for-profits um, and, and in government organizations. And I think that the, the, the experience that I had there demonstrated to me that the, the same kinds of success factors were present there as, as was present in uh, for-profit organizations. So whether or not there's more, it would be hard for me to say because I think it's always been there. I, you know, I do think that we see increasing emphasis, you know, year after year on accountability mm-hmm. in these organizations. I think that there, there are examples of, uh, you know, bad behavior that get flouted. You know, you hear the story about a, you know, a charity organization that is spending 85% of its donations on salaries for um, its administration, so on and so forth. I mean, there's a, so there's a pressure on wanting these to also be well-run organizations. And I think that certainly supports not just the creation of a COO role, but the empowering of that position so that they really are in a position to make sure um, that best practices are put in place. Um, so I'm not sure about prevalence, but I, I certainly think there's evidence of, of increasing importance of the role in those sectors. Is there any research um comparing COOs who are in, again, a Fortune 100 company um, where uh, profit and revenue come first to, let's say, social enterprises or even B corporations like a Patagonia and others. Uh, is there any research being done on that or, or will there be any research being done comparing the triple bottom line companies to, to the, the, I guess, the, the current everyday companies? <laughs> Right. Right. Well, I, I'm not aware. And I, I guess I'd be really curious because obviously you've spent a lot of time thinking about this role. What, what would your hypothesis be? I mean, what would you think a researcher would, would find or what would be the, what would be the question you'd want them to address? Well, I think the, the question would be balance. Um, on the topic of B corporations, the, the, whole, cre- the whole idea of a B corporation is a system being created uh, that a company adopts that is essentially a framework that enables um, that company to meet specific criteria for a balanced organization. For those mm-hmm. companies that are not familiar with B corporations, companies have to acquire certification in order to become certified as a B Corp. Um, that requires them to go through an annual process of making sure they're adhering to um, specific infrastructure and policies within, within the organization. And for instance, hiring uh, X amount from a diversity perspective, uh, continue to hire from within. The, the question that I would probably want to be asked about the CEOs that are working in um, B Corps versus say um, Profit 100 companies is, are the personalities of the COOs uh, very similar in B Corporations versus the, the, the CEOs? Um, meaning are they, you know, are they focused on on value uh, versus profit, which I feel like are, are very two different things, which guide how you operate. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that would probably be the key one is the 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 value creation versus you know revenue and profit creation. I feel like that guides differences in in operations. Okay, so so that's a I think that's a great question to ask. I, I can tell you what I think the 
the research would find, right? So uh, there are two things that come to mind. The first is um, clearly uh, part of what gets somebody excited about an opportunity is an identification with the organization's mission. I think it's I think it's a little harder to get up in the morning and go to work. It's a little bit harder to, to drive to the airport to catch the red eye back uh, if you're not really all in on the the mission, what it is that the company is all about. So I do think that there'd be a self-selection bias when it comes to personal values. If you were to look at, you know, kind of who takes the COO role at an organization like a B Corps versus uh, top 100, as you as you articulated. So that's the, the first thing I think you'd find. But then the second thing I think you would find is at the end of the day, um, even in the, the scenario you, you described so well, um, you're essentially just talking about a broader set of metrics, right? And, and COOs are, are about hitting metrics and about understanding how, given the levers that a, that a leader has to pull at an organization, how do we hit the metrics? What's the right, what are the right levers to pull? How hard do I need to pull on each of them to make sure that we're jointly maximizing a return on all of these metrics. So that's the that's the same COO challenge, regardless of where you are. Big company, little company, for profit, not for profit. That's what the job's about. So I, I do think you have different sorts of people attracted to those positions because they're going to be people who are inspired by the mission. But at the end of the day, uh, I think the work is about making the numbers. Yeah, that's a great that's a great topic to explore. Um, I'll have yeah. to do some yeah, research yeah. on the side myself. Um, yeah, yeah. That the the development of uh, social enterprises, the development of not for profits, the forces that are upon us, uh, especially the economy where it's at. Where I think we're going into probably a winter uh, economy over the next few years globally. Um, the pressures on COOs to um, not only hit those metrics but stay. Uh, mentally well and focused um, definitely will have yeah. to correlate with their decisions of, you know, is this the organization yeah. that I want to be with for a long period of time? For sure. It's very, yeah. very. Or how can I influence the organization? How can I influence the organization? So it, it evolves into the kind of organization that, that not just I'd want to stay at, but where mm-hmm. the best talent would want to be at. Yeah. And that's such a hard one too. Um, you know, trying to implement that, that strategic change if the ceo is the owner of the strategy and the ceo is let's just say in these defined roles the the implementator for lack of better word you know how can that coo let's say let's just say for an example what tools or processes could they use to be able to implement that change within an organization and let's just be specific for, for this example let's say they wanted to actually um, move their organization into becoming a B Corp. Um, what can they do to, to make that change in their organization? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a, a great question. I think that you know, you 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 quickly get into you know trying to understand how much of a departure is that from the direction in which the company's headed. You know, I don't know. You know, it's interesting to think about. You know, how many degrees. Uh, uh, can a can a COO uh, turn the turn the helm without the CEO becoming, you know, a little bit frustrated, or without the board becoming a little bit frustrated? Um, you know, the 
there's certainly some limit on that, right? Um, so if what the COO has in mind as a future vision is a fair number of degrees apart from what the board or the CEO view as the future vision, then you know probably the COO needs to be thinking about a different place to, to work because the, mm-hmm. the things that matter to them are not uh, consistent with the things that matter to the other power players of the organization. And with that, um, do you have any parting words or key considerations for our listeners? Um, considerations for the boards and CEOs or uh, considerations for CEOs and CEO candidates? Yeah, I think the, you know, I think the thing to, to keep in mind at the broadest level um, about the, the ways to make the COO role work um, really are to, first of all, be comfortable with the fact that um, it's what you need from that role is going to change over time. And the COO may or may not be able to change as rapidly or, or rapidly enough to keep up with changes in what's needed from that role. That shouldn't be viewed as uh, in any way a criticism of the COO. It's simply a reflection of how complex um, the position is in an organization. So I think that needs to be I think that needs to be kept in mind. Um, the second thing that I, I think always needs to be kept in mind is that really the key to making the COO role work is the CEO. If the CEO uh, doesn't want or doesn't understand the business case uh, really at a deep level for why a COO is there, um, the position is not going to be able to be effective. And then finally, even if the, the CEO intellectually knows that they need a COO, if they can't really completely and fully commit to sharing power, uh, to developing a trusting relationship, uh, to providing the COO with real meaningful work and and a, a portion of the spotlight, um, then the pair will, will fail. Um, when the pair fails, generally it's the COO that, that exits. Um, and um, uh, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't necessarily be assumed that the departure of the COO reflects a failure on the COO's part and may very well reflect a failure on the CEO's part. I think we're, we're good on questions. I think we've explored quite a, quite a bit okay. here today. Um, oh, no, you had great, uh, you had yeah. great questions. Thanks very much. It was an interesting yeah. conversation. If you want to join our Slack community of operators, click the link in the show notes. With that, thanks again to Nate Bennett, and we'll see you next time.